So we have a question from uh, Stefan, who is uh, physically present here, our long-term retreatant. And this question is about Anapanasati. And he is asking, how can Anapanasati, the meditation, mindfulness of the breath, lead to the end of suffering? And how can that uh, eradicate and agreed hatred and delusion. And he can see, he says, that uh, Anapanasati in the leads to calm, to samatha, <clears throat> the samadhi side concentration. But how can it actually lead to the um, understanding of vulnerable truth and the destruction of the asavas, elimination of kilesas and defilements? That's quite a, a unique meditation object that it is both uh, very suitable for concentration on one side, what we call samatha or samadhi, concentration, unification of mind, and at the other side uh, for vipassana, insight, and we practice wisdom, panya, it is also suitable. I think most people probably... Um, have a tendency to develop it more on the concentration side, samadhi. Uh, the sutta which would be giving the answer there is basically in you know, the Anapana Sati Sutta in Majjhimanikaya, I think 118, number 118 in the middle length discourses. And there the Buddha describes how mindfulness of breathing is developing all four Satipatthana, the body, feeling, mind, that is in the mind states and emotions, and fourth, and the contemplation of Dhamma, and all four can be developed by Anapanasati, and then out of the development of the four Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, the seven factors of enlightenment can also be developed. So it may be a, maybe a little bit too much if I try to go through the whole sutta here, which I also haven't got in front of me. But the important thing is that all four satipatthanas are included if one practices anapanasati according to these instructions. <clears throat> so the, the point would be, as in the Satipatthana Sutta, to watch out for phenomena arising and passing away. Nasamuriya dhamanu pasiva viharati, vaya dhamanu pasiva viharati, samuriya vaya dhamanu pasiva viharati. So he dwells in observing the phenomena of uh, arising and passing away. And if he apply that to the Satipatthana as they are experienced when we're doing Anapanasati. 
within the knowledge of impermanence and the knowledge of uh, arising dependent to causes and conditions and ceasing depending on causes and conditions that can be discerned. The one quality of Anapanasati is that the meditation object is actually changing quite a bit. The first Satipatthana is a body. And it already starts with many people having different ideas and where the breath should be observed. And some people say on the tip of the nose, in the Mahasi tradition, they're watching the movement of the abdomen. And other people uh, may notice more the chest moving. Numpoli uh, Damadao has an interesting system where he is doing Anapanasatina by shifting to a different kind of chakras or energy points in the body and many different points in the body and then moving throughout the body and shifting the energy flow and the awareness of different centers of energy. And whatever system they follow, most people will notice that the perception of the body is also changing. In my own case, when I practice Anapanasati, at some stage it's difficult to distinguish what is the breath and what is the body. To my personal perception in Anapanasati, they, they tend to merge because the energy of the breath is in the whole body. And uh, then the, the breath is experience and the body is experience and it becomes like the one thing. And then the body may become very light. Now, these are more like samadhi effects. Now, when the mind settles down, the breath becomes very cool, very soothing, very calm, very refreshing. The body may feel light like a cotton duft, like floating. And also the external boundary of the body may no longer be so clear. It may feel more diffuse or maybe smaller or like expanding. So when these samadhi effects occur, one can also use wisdom to look at them. And normally we run around with the conviction that this body is very substantial and when we suddenly then in Anapanasati experience our body like a cotton tuft and not clearly delineated from the external environment and just some very beautiful subtle energy, it's obviously a huge change. And whatever in a normal physical heavy body with all the inertia we experience is suddenly no longer there. So this is how one can observe the arising and vanishing factors in the body. The Buddha says in the Anapanasati Sutta, Ka Yesu Ka Yanya Tarasming, Yadidanga Sasapasasanam. Now this is one body amongst the bodies, namely the in and out breath. This is fairly cryptic also in the Pali and one has to investigate the meaning of what the Buddha says there and then one's own meditation. And I've just described now how I experience the breath body and the physical body in being quite closely connected and kind of merging. 
but your experience may be quite different. But I think almost everyone, when they do Anapana Sati, will have a very noticeable change in the perception of the body. And this will undermine the sense of self regarding the body. The self usually should be stable and unchanging. Doesn't make sense not to postulate a self which is at one moment like a cotton tuft, at another moment like a heavy body sitting there and under the law of gravity. And then uh, the instruction of the Buddha to uh, calm the whole body activity. When we identify with the body, a lot of that is the activities we do with the body. Another satipatthana exercise for the body, to notice how the body is moving, how we are stretching, extending and flexing our limbs, moving the whole body. And uh, I am the one doing the moving, for example, is another strong aspect of the delusion of self. And quite a few people define themselves by how they move the body. For example, sports stars or supermodels who can walk, the catwalk in this uh, supermodel style. And uh, a football player with this supreme body skills or basketball or whatever. And now you're calming down all these activities. Pasambayang kaya sankarang asasasamiti sekati calming down on bodily activities. So in a, a huge change, something very different from our the normal perception of the body and what we can do with it. The breath is actually very changeable. So um, conspicuous in that meditation object that you can change the breath. And then very similar for the other meditation objects, the feeling. The feeling why you do anapanasati is changing. And the development which is encouraged for attaining samadhi is to develop joy, happiness, gladness, rapture and bliss. And then in the later stages also equanimity. So we have the same effect. These feelings are changing. They're not changing so much in the the normal sense or you can observe feeling that you have a certain sense contact. You see something you like, the beautiful flowers. I have these flowers here in front of me. You see some beautiful flowers and then you may get a pleasant feeling. And then if you have a different sense contact, you look at the corpse of a decaying cane toad. It looks ugly and we may have an unpleasant feeling. Not in this sense, but because your meditation becomes more refined, and the breath becomes more refined, and then the, the feelings become more refined and more happy and turning into rapture and bliss. 
and later maybe even into equanimity, even after a person has attained jhana, on breath meditation, now then the uh, feeling develops further in its refinement towards equanimity. And so there's a uh, change which can be observed. And the Samudhiya Dhamma, you know, the factors or the causes of origin, is in this case you know, the refinement of the perception of the breath. So you can observe you know, the um, arising and passing away of feelings according to causes and conditions while you do a breath meditation. Uh, it may be even more conspicuous with the third one, you know, the mind. The mind changes tremendously in Anapanasati. You may start with a very uh, distracted and agitated mind. And after some time of meditating on the breath, your mind may become very calm and uh, relaxed and focused. This is exactly what you observe in the third Satipatthana, Chitanupasana, a distracted mind or focused mind. You may start you know, with uh, aversion or anger and then due to the developing samadhi and to the whole relaxation of the body, you know, the aversion, the anger, the desire you know, may start to fade away. So you observe you know, these changing mind states and why the samadhi is developing. You can also use wisdom you now to see how the mind is changing due to the development of samadhi. The Buddha and Anapanasati Sutta particular points out the quality of sati. One needs very strong sati to observe the subtle breath. And sati is another factor of mind, so you observe mind. To have strong sati, you must be in uh, observing your mind. And the fourth Satipatthana is in the contemplation of Dhamma, and it starts with the uh, five hindrances. And that is also the Buddha gives as an example, what the Buddha gives as an example in Anapanasati Sutta. He describes that. And due to the development of samadhi, you know, the hindrances become suppressed. So that's exactly you know, what we do in the section on the five hindrances in the fourth Satipatthana. You know, one understands the hindrance, one understands you know, how it arises, how it is overcome, and how it doesn't arise in the future. So even while developing anapanasati, one can observe that. Does it make any any sense? Uh, and ha have a look at uh, 118 in middle-length discourses, Stefan. It's a very beautiful uh, explanation. And probably the most complete. There's also the Anapanasati Sangyutta, the whole uh, chapter in the Sangyutta Nikaya about suttas on Anapanasati. But I think um, middle-length discourses number 118 will be the best source there. I can't really go into everything now. And then uh, the Buddha also describes how the development of the four Satipatthana leads to the development of the factors of enlightenment.
Okay, Catherine. Ajahn, the Buddhist Fellowship in Singapore is wanting an excellent and insightful live FB Anapanasati course for eight weeks each Saturday evening. Could I share it with the group? Yeah, I mean, how, how would I object to someone sharing some Dhamma? I like to share that we are also running an eight-week introduction to Buddhism or introduction to the Eightfold Path program. So we will uh, be doing until the beginning of Vasana. We have uh, eight days if we do Saturday, Sunday. So beginning from next Saturday and next Sunday, we will go through the eight factors of the Eightfold Path. So next Saturday, the first one at noon, 12.15, wide view. Next Sunday, the second one, wide intention. And then we go through the whole Eightfold Path. And then when the Vasa starts, the rainy season retreat, you know the whole Eightfold Path and you can really practice it. <laughs> Quite an ingenious idea, isn't it? You're getting sent up for the rains retreat. There's one question by ID 18218888. What, what is neutral feeling, Ajahn? Yeah, this is a good question because uh, neutral feeling is a the tricky one. It's not so prominent. It's also known in Pali as Adukamasukha Vedana, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, or neither unpleasant nor pleasant. And that is maybe already the explanation. So whenever we have conscious experience, you will feel it as either pleasant or unpleasant. And of course, there's a huge range. It's not just pleasant or unpleasant. But if you put, uh, how to say, numbers on it, the pleasant feeling can go from just a little bit pleasant one point to maybe unbelievably blissful uh, one million points and any gradation in between. So it's not just one pleasant feeling, but there's a huge, huge range how pleasant it can become. And the same for unpleasant down to an excruciating painful. But it's also possible that the conscious experience we have is just in between. It doesn't feel pleasant, it doesn't feel unpleasant. But it uh, requires no sharp mindfulness to notice that. And when your mindfulness increases, I think normally you will notice that what you thought is a neutral feeling is just a tiny bit pleasant or tiny bit unpleasant, but one didn't quite notice that. And as your mindfulness increases, uh, you probably feel that actually uh, it's still a little bit pleasant or a little bit unpleasant. And only rarely will it hit exactly you know, the, the midpoint between the two. It is also very important in terms of uh, mental feeling. 
sowie Can Distinguish Feelings by First of All Physical Ones. So you see something, you hear something, you touch something. This is all meant by a physical feeling, not only from the body, but by any of the senses. Or you don't have any sensory input, but you're only imagining or thinking something, and then you have a mental feeling. Usually one has got both together, because if you have a physical feeling, say, I see the beautiful flower again, I have a pleasant feeling, then the mind will also take that up as an object, and you may think about the beautiful flower, and then you also have a mental pleasant feeling, and they both come usually together. And for the physical feelings, there's usually no... um, no way, you, you cannot force a feeling to be a certain way. Uh, if someone knocks me on the head and is likely to feel unpleasant, or if one eats some food which one really doesn't like, you can't really change that you may have an unpleasant feeling. But where we can work is with the uh, mental feeling. And the whole practice of uh, equanimity it's based on that, that we are trying to get the mental feeling neutral. Usually if you develop equanimity, you will have a mental neutral feeling. This is why sometimes the uh, mental neutral feeling and equanimity are a little bit confused, or even neutral feeling and equanimity, some people think that's the same. But equanimity is not the same as neutral feeling, because the whole point of equanimity is that even if you have excruciating, painful feeling, you may still have equanimity. Even if you have very strong, central, pleasant feeling by getting uh, excellent food or having uh, a hot shower on a really cold day, if you're practicing well, you would be able to establish equanimity even though there's a very strong, pleasant feeling. But equanimity will usually mean that the uh, mental feeling will become neutral. So neutral feeling is very important to develop in in the area of mental feelings, in particular when we want to establish equanimity. Otherwise, for uh, Dhamma practice, the more important ones, particularly for the fundamental or more basic stages, will be the pleasant and unpleasant feelings. They are more strongly connected with uh, stimulating defilements, Neutral feeling, the problem is, the Buddha said, no, there's still delusion there. We don't fully understand it. But what really triggers us to, to act is usually you know, the pleasant and the unpleasant feeling. So if you work more with the pleasant and unpleasant feeling in the beginning, that is probably more important. The feeling is the cause of craving. And usually neutral feeling doesn't trigger much craving. It's usually the pain which triggers the craving to get rid of it. And it's a pleasant feeling which triggers the craving to latch onto it, to hold, hold onto it, and to get more of it. 
In fact, for many people, this is a whole life, just running after pleasant feeling and running away from, from painful feeling. And once we notice that, we can become quite disenchanted by that. What, what is the point of living one's life as one ultimately fruitless exercise of running away from the unpleasant feeling and running after the pleasant one? So I would suggest it's more important to work with um, pleasant and unpleasant or painful feeling. That will be more effective. And as the practice is advancing and you work more with uh, developing equanimity or you may even attain jhana and uh, then you try to refine it from the Navetra and bliss towards equanimity, and then, then uh, the neutral feeling will become more important. Hi, Ajahn. Maybe I start with this question by the same one on neutral feeling. Could neutral feeling cause insecurity, Ajahn? I doubt that. And my spontaneous answer would be, no, I, I can't quite see that. The problem is that neutral feeling usually doesn't cause anything too much, except that uh, there's this delusion that we can't fully understand and comprehend it. But it usually doesn't, I can't see how it would cause uh, insecurity. Insecurity is usually connected uh, with unpleasant feelings. If you feel insecure, you have usually an unpleasant feeling. If it's very strong and you panic, it will be you know, even a painful feeling. And I think the insecurity is caused by other things, not, not by neutral feeling. Uh, one thing the Buddha recommended for feeling more uh, confident is uh, developing strong sila. And if one already has strong sila, then to reflect on it and recollect it. Reflecting and recollecting your virtue, particularly if one actually does keep the precept, then reflecting on that will give one uh, confidence and, and self-esteem. The Buddha said one advantage, one benefit of uh, developing virtuous, that one can go into the assemblies and even in a large assembly and one will not feel you know, shy because one can rest in that you know, assuredness and certainty that one is a good person due to one's good practice of precepts. So bad precept can cause you know, insecurity, that would be one cause. But there will be many others there will be many others, but I, I can't really see how neutral feeling would, would be causing that. Usually one feels quite at ease with neutral feeling. It may cause some boredom. I could imagine neutral feeling causing boredom in people who haven't you know, developed Dhamma. If you develop Dhamma, you may feel quite happy with neutral feeling because it allows you know, to really focus and your mindfulness is not being disturbed and you can contemplate you know, very easily. A worldly person who is you know, deliberately trying to stimulate pleasant feelings may feel boredom from neutral feeling, but I can't really see insecurity. 
Uh, recollecting the Buddha is also great for feeling more secure. And just imagine that the Buddha would be walking a few meters ahead of you. You would feel in a very secure. Or the Buddha sitting in a c- couple of meters away from you, and like the Buddha statue here. I remember after the Buddha statue came in here, I always felt more, more at ease. It's just very pleasant it, to sit next not even the Buddha, not just a statue representing the Buddha. It's really good. So if you recollect the Buddha a lot, you, know, you will feel more secure. Some people do so much good practice, but they neglect to really recollect it and remind themselves of all the goodness they have done. You know, your punya, all the good karma you have made, and please recollect it, and then you will feel more secure. Recollect Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, recollect your virtue, recollect your goodness, a good karma, and then the insecurity, anxiety will diminish. Okay, we're accumulating questions. What is the difference between neutral feeling and equanimity? And I think we have to distinguish here between a neutral a physical feeling and neutral mental feeling. So you can have equanimity and even if you have very strong physical pleasant or unpleasant feelings. Let's say a pain, you've got a headache. So there's strong pain. But your mental attitude is equanimity. Equanimity to my understanding, is the midpoint between liking and disliking. So equanimity is not so much about the feeling directly, but it's about the response. And usually we respond to feelings with liking and disliking. And quite naturally, most people will dislike pain and they like pleasant feeling. That's a typical response, a pleasant feeling arises, and then liking arises. So the point of practicing equanimity is to let go of the liking. That doesn't mean that the feeling will also be gone. The feeling may still be there. It's the same with pain. So you have a strong pain, a toothache, a headache, flu, whatever. Uh, Maybe a bereavement, you lost a loved one. There's all kinds of causes for giving us strong, painful feelings. And usually we dislike them. So the response to unpleasant feeling is usually disliking. And the practice of equanimity now is to let go of the disliking and to be equanimous instead. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the feeling will be gone, particularly the physical one. If you have equanimity to your headache, you may still have a pain. But you're equanimous about it. However, regarding the mental feelings, if you practice equanimity, then the mental unpleasant feeling, that usually can go. That is possible. Because if you have a headache, there's usually two feelings. The first is a physical pain. And secondly, is this mental engagement, that I don't like the pain, and how long, how long is it going to go? What if it gets worse? What if that is a brain tumor? 
why is that so unfair? Why only me having a headache? And uh, I had a headache already last week. And 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 and. And because of this form of mental proliferation, we get a, a second painful feeling, a mental one. On the other hand, if one practices equanimity and you get a headache, and you contemplate, now this is just a, a feeling based on contact in the body and that arises due to that cause and after some time it will vanish and will be gone again. And it's just a sankhava arising and passing away. So why should I dislike it? What's the big thing about something so, so impermanent? It's not really me, it's not mine. You contemplate that you don't own that feeling, that pain. And then equanimity is established. You don't dislike the pain. And then usually another mental painful feeling will, will be gone. Once you establish equanimity, you know, the mental feelings will tend, will tend towards a neutral. So there's a strong connection between equanimity and mental neutral feeling. I would suggest whenever you develop equanimity successfully, you will have mental neutral feeling. But at the same time, you can still have a painful or pleasant feeling physically. The Buddha had equanimity when he had all the pain on his last day before Parinibbana. But although he had the equanimity, the painful feelings would still be there. But he didn't dislike them. And the mental feeling would be mental neutral feeling because of the equanimity, because of the dropping and letting go of liking and disliking. So equanimity is really about letting go of the liking and disliking. And to let go of liking and disliking, you have to contemplate the feelings as impermanent, as not me, as not mine, as arising and passing away. Malika, practicing mindfulness of body, Mava doesn't like it. No, he doesn't like it, I agree. Can you explain it, Ajahn? Is it because we are trying to safeguard our unwholesome states of mind? Yeah, no, that is certainly one reason. Mava generally doesn't like you practicing Dhamma. And if you, yesterday we talked about the promises the Buddha made you know, for mindfulness of the body. You know, almost anything up to the attainment of complete liberation from suffering. So obviously why Mara wouldn't like that. Now, even on the beginning stages when you don't have achieved uh, uh, jhana, samadhi and uh, insight, from your mindfulness of the body yet. You haven't achieved that yet. But you're already starting out you know, on being in the present moment and being aware and looking at your body and investigating it. Already then it's quite difficult for Mara to get, get in anymore. You're already uh, in, in an area where Mara doesn't really have much access. Already right from the beginning. If your um, mindfulness is on the screen, 
when you're on the internet, it's very easy for Mora to get in. You're just a, a click away from, from pretty unwholesome things usually all the time. So very easy for Mava. There can so many images, so many stimulating things that can come there. Once you're going within your body, this is very difficult. What can Mava great what can what can he do? Mava always likes to present the body as so attractive and beautiful and as yourself. But once you go in and look at this body more objectively, as it really is, how can Mawa succeed with that? If you look at your, your fingernails, take, take a magnifying glass and look at a fingernail. Nakha, is that beautiful? Cut your fingernails, cut, cut off. And then take one of the cutoffs and look at it, maybe particularly on a, on a, on a magnifying glass. Uh, Mawa is very smart, but trying to, to conjure up that this is now really beautiful, very, very difficult even for Mawa. And once you go under the skin, so to speak, even for Mawa, very difficult to feel that blood and bones and flesh and uh, liver and kidneys, that this is beautiful and attractive. No, or imagine, uh, imagine your body being taken apart. And maybe after we have passed away, some people give their body for scientific purposes, uh, that the uh, medical students can take it apart and learn anatomy. Uh, so we just imagine you may be doing that. Now you have passed away and this is your body and now being taken apart. And then they're taking out the kidney and put it on this stainless steel table, maybe in a stainless steel bowl. No, we don't have a stainless steel bowl. <laughs> I've got only this one. Um, sometimes we use here at Emma give you the stainless steel bowls as spittoons. And you may notice that they use very similar <laughs> kind of bowls in anatomy. And there's maybe another person, and they take out the kidney, and then you have got two stainless steel bowls with these two kidneys, and you compare them, and which one is more beautiful? This is a ridiculous question, isn't it? Or is, is that your kidney then still, compared to the other kidney? No, this is mine. It doesn't, doesn't make much sense. So this is, I believe, Almava doesn't like it, and it's very hard for him to, to get in with his usual tricks. And his usual tricks are to conjure up the sense of the permanence. Once you're really within this body and you look at this body, you, you will not find permanence, you will find impermanence. Mawa's trick is usually to conjure up that the body is beautiful, attractive, something to go after, something to hanker after, something to be proud of, even conceited about, and an arrogant, or what, what a beautiful body I have. <laughs> it's very difficult to do that once a person actually looks at the body. To be arrogant about that my bones are better than your bones, or something like that, it, just, it doesn't make sense. All these tricks of Mawa, they don't work anymore once we contemplate the body. That's why the Buddha gave the simile, you may have 
look that up, I guess, Malika, ne? we yesterday talked about Kāyagata Satisutta, and the Buddha said, now for someone who has not developed mindfulness of the body, Maha will gain access. Just like if you have a lump, or rather a heap, a heap of no war wet clay, and then you take a really heavy rock and drop it onto this heap of wet clay, and the wet clay, and the rock will just boop, and go right in and be stuck there. This is how Mava gets into a person who does not develop mindfulness of the body. But now imagine a, a person taking a little coil of cotton wool and throwing it against a massive wooden door. With this little coil of cotton wool and penetrate the massive wooden door, there's no way. And likewise, Mava can't really get in into a person who has developed mindfulness of the body. You also have an anchor. It anchors your awareness in something wholesome and good and something that leads to insight. The Ma usually likes to pull our awareness to these unwholesome things which cause defilements. Usually he likes to pull us towards very beautiful forms so that we get all these pleasant feelings and beautiful sounds, beautiful uh, pleasant tastes and so on and that we got all this craving and desire and attachment arising. So one important point is not allow Mava to pull our attention towards these things which cause defilements or also other defilements and the fear we're talking about insecurity. And if you're an insecure person, the Mava will constantly try to put your attention on your weak points to make you more insecure. This is always defeating you. You feel insecure, and now Mava constantly gets your attention to look at all your weak points and to look at what could go wrong. What if I'm giving this talk? Now I'm on a live podcast here, and I'm on live video there, and then I've got two people here in the Dhamma Hall. And, and what if I have a blackout now? Maybe they ask me a question, and I haven't got the slightest clue. I read out the question, and I have no idea how to answer that. And then I'm sitting here, and then everyone feels this monk really hasn't got a clue. And maybe even I'm sitting here for five minutes, and I can't answer, and, and I don't know what to say anymore, and I get a red face and palpitations. So if I contemplate like that, I will feel very insecure. You, you know what I mean. It would be a natural response to be insecure. This is what Mava will try to do with an insecure person, to go through all the worst-case scenarios, what could happen, to go through all your weak points. And while you're attending to that and while you're contemplating your weak points and uh, the worst-case scenario and what could go wrong and how people may dislike you or how they may poke fun at you or when this person looked like this, it probably meant that they disapprove of me. And then the insecurity never turn into panic because our attention is in the wrong area, our weaknesses and uh, hypothetical worst-case scenarios all the time. On the other hand, if we have 
mindfulness of the body well established, you have an anchor for your awareness, for your consciousness, what you're attending to. And then Mava can't pull it into the unwholesome direction. This is why the Buddha actually said, if you develop mindfulness of the body, one advantage is that you will not have anxiety and fear. You will conquer anxiety and fear. You will not be conquered by it. Simply because Namava needs your attention to go to all these dangerous things and think about them. What if you get a second wave and then I get COVID? And when I get COVID and I'm in intensive care, maybe it's uh, overwhelmed and then I don't get a respirator and what do I do then? Uh, probably I can't do too much then, but if I go through this scenario, then anxiety will come and insecurity. This is what Mava wants me to do. We have hardly any cases right now, but Mava, if I'm insecure, wants me to think about what happens if the second wave comes. I get it, I get it badly, I'm in hospital, hospital is overwhelmed, uh, I don't even get a respirator, I can't breathe anymore, what to do? I mean, what to do? Can't do much, isn't it? But if you're just, for example, on the breath, this is also a contemplation of the body. You know, the first exercise is in the breath meditation. I'm just watching the breath. So Mava can't pull me away into these horror scenarios. He can't make me insecure. Watching the breath doesn't make me insecure. Or watching my bodily postures doesn't make me insecure. So that's the other effect of mindfulness, uh, of breathing and of uh, mindfulness of the body. Now you have an anchor for your awareness. You're anchored in, in a wholesome and good object of awareness. And then Mawa can't pull you into the unwholesome areas.